0: Let's, uh, let's turn to Romans chapter 3, and we'll read verse 21 through to the end of the chapter, and then we'll pray and get into it here. So it says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No. But by the law of faith, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not? The God of the Gentiles also, yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray. Let's come to God's word. Lord, this is a pretty awesome passage. There's so much in there, and God is. As we read it, as we think upon it, what we need is your spirit to take it and apply it to our lives and make it real to us. Lord, we wanna let go of works. We wanna let go of law, Lord. We wanna be people who live by the economy of faith with you. And so, Lord, we ask for a work of your spirit in our hearts today, Lord. I pray for each person here that, God, that you you would just do the dissecting work with your word. And that you would just trim off the works of the flesh in our life, Lord. And that you would bring forth the work of the spirit and the life of faith in each one of us. And God, we ask your blessing upon this time, Lord. May your Holy Spirit lead it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Not long before uh, Saul was picked as the first king of Israel... Really, just as as Samuel's ministry as a judge and as a prophet was cranking up, as the scripture says Samuel's word was beginning to go out to the whole nation, uh, Israel got in a very famous, (coughs) excuse me, I got a bit of a cough this morning. (coughs) Israel got in a very famous battle with the Philistines and as they lined up, uh, the Israelites lined up at, the area of Ebenezer and the Philistines lined up at Aphek and the battle line was drawn. They went into battle with one another and Israel got stomped. Like the Philistines just gave it to them. And so... As the Israelites backed off, they regrouped, they got their elders together, and they assessed the defeat and what had happened. They asked themselves this question, why has the Lord defeated us against the Philistines? It's like kind of a weird question because it's like, why did the, it's not why did the Philistines defeat us? They said, why did the Lord defeat us against the Philistines? And so they determined this, we're going to go line up against the Philistines again. And this time we're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant with us. And so they went uh, and they retrieved the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh where Eli was priest. And the battle lines were drawn up again. They went into battle. They took the Ark of the Covenant with them. And they believed that the Ark of the Covenant was going to save them in this battle with the Philistines. Now the Ark of the Covenant is kind of like this... I don't know, like you, you see pictures of it. We read about it in our Bibles. It's got like, it, there's tons of detail about it. And yet still at the same time, it's kind of this mysterious thing, isn't it? It's like, wow, what is about this Ark of the Covenant? It's like intriguing. I can read all these details and still I'm like, what is this thing? And, and it's, so, it's so interesting. The Bible tells us all about it. It was fashioned out of wood. It was two feet wide. It's four feet long. It's two feet deep. It was covered on the inside and on the outside with gold. Everything was overlaid with gold. And then inside it was set uh, the tablets that Moses had. He had carved out, the, remember he broke the first tablets that he received at Mount Sinai. So he made a second set of tablets and the, the Lord instructed him to inscribe upon them the Ten Commandments and he took those Ten Commandments. He set them in the Ark of the Covenant. So inside it was, was these tablets, and then the Lord instructed Moses that they were to fashion a cover, a lid to go on this, this cabinet. And so they, they made a lid. It was, again, two feet wide, four feet long. It was made of solid gold. There was no wood in it. And so I don't know. I always wonder how thick this thing was. It was thick. <coughs> Excuse me. And they placed this lid on top of the ark, and they called it this. It was called the mercy seat. And then the Lord instructed Moses that they were to take gold and they were to fashion out two cherubim angels and they were to set them on this mercy seat, the cover, the lid. And the angels were fashioned in such a way that they were on the outsides of the lid facing one another towards the center and their wings were stretched out like this. And it kind of overshadowed the center of the lid. And, and what would happen is, is that this Ark of the Covenant was placed in the Holy of Holies. And once a year, the, the high priest would go in there. We know this. The Day of Atonement, he'd take blood in there. There would be a sacrifice made. He would apply blood to the lid, to the mercy seat. And, and in doing so, on the Day of Atonement, he was, he was making you know, reparation for this for the sins of Israel, for, for the sins of the nation. And God would see the blood. He would... He would have mercy on them in regards to his law. And so the ark was like the centerpiece of the whole worship system. It was like in the Holy of Holies. Mysterious because it involved the presence of God and atonement and like the mystery of how a a man's sin is made right before God. And so Israel goes and they, they take this thing and they bring it with them into battle against the Philistines. And, and, and it's it's kind of it's kind of strange, but but what happened is this is that Israel was defeated by the Philistines in that battle. And you know, the defeat was awful, but worse than the defeat was this that in the battle the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant and they took it back with them to their cities. It was like devastating. It was like it was like the nation losing the presence of God, this thing that symbolized to them the presence of God. And in fact, when, when word was sent to Eli that this, is, this had happened, the Old Testament records it, that Eli was sitting by the gate of the city and he fell backwards off his seat and because he was an old man and overweight, the scripture says. When he fell, he broke his neck and he died. And it was like, it's like symbolic of what was going on amongst the people. But, you know, right right here is this kind of, in the story is kind of this weird thing where, you know, the Israelites said, we need to take the presence of God with us into battle, which is right. You and I need that. We need the presence of God with us when we go into battle. But this is where they made a mistake at the same time because rather than seeking God for his presence, rather than seeking relationship with God, what they did was they they grabbed the symbol of his presence. They grabbed just the, the Ark of the Covenant. You know, rather than yearning for the presence of God in their lives and in battle, they turned to the Ark and they treated it like the good luck charm. You know, It's like, go get the lucky rabbit's foot. And we'll go in against, go get the dream catcher. And we'll go into battle against the enemy. Like the, the Ark of the Covenant represented some magical thing rather than the holy God of heaven. And so the Philistines captured this ark. And so they take it back with them to their cities. And, and, and you read about this in 1 Samuel. And the, issue, the, the problem was is that for the Philistines, the presence of God was not a good thing. They were not his people. They did not serve him. And... 1 Samuel chapter 5 begins to recount the story of what happened to to the Philistines when they had the presence of God, this Ark of the Covenant in their midst. It was literally killing them. They were like, send it to that city. People start dying and getting disease and sickness over there. Send it to that city. They start dying over there. Send it to that city. They start dying over there. They're like, we have to get rid of this thing. This is not good to have this in our presence. And so after just seven months of having possession of this thing, they set the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. They affixed to this cart two milk cows with their calves, and they didn't let anyone lead them. They, t- uh, sorry, they took the calves from the milk cows. So, you know, you know a mama with her baby, she's going to go find her calves. But these milk cows, not led by anyone, walked and pulled that cart all the way back to the city, the Israeli, Israeli city of Beth And the people of Beth were like so pumped. They're like, look, the ark. The ark. And they, they offered to the Lord, pumped to have the, the presence of God back in their midst, they, they offered burnt offerings and sacrifices to the Lord and they worshiped. And yet on that day, the Bible tells us something kind of strange happened. That 70 men in their midst died that the Lord struck some of the men of Beshemash even while they were so excited about this Ark of the Covenant coming back into their midst. See, see, the 70 men had like this unholy curiosity. Just like we have a curiosity about the Ark of the Covenant. We said, what is this thing? They had this curiosity and they didn't, they, they, they did this. They went to it and they said, we gotta see what's inside here. Let's lift the lid. And so, it's, it's kind of entertaining. It's kind of almost, it's funny. Let, let's see what's inside the ark. And so they did this. They lifted the golden mercy seat. That, that spot where the blood was placed, where atonement had been made. They, they lifted it off, and they looked inside that ark to see what was in there. And when they lifted the lid off, there, there was no blood anymore for the forgiveness of sin. There was no mercy anymore. And they just stared at the tablets, they, they had a look at the law. And as they looked upon the law of God without any mercy and without any blood, well, the Lord struck them. They died. I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, we, we understand that. We understand that. Paul's been telling us this in Romans. And the rest of the men of Beth Shemesh, when all this goes down, said this. They said, who's able to stand before this holy God? This is terrifying. The presence of this God is terrifying. Who can stand before him? He's holy. And they sent the ark off to the next city. Sent it off to those people. This God is too holy. And in Romans 1 and in Romans 2 and up to where we've gotten in Romans chapter 3 so far, Paul's done this. He's lifted off the lid for us. That's what he's been doing. He's been lifting off the lid and he's saying, let me uncover to you and reveal to you the law of God and the wrath of God. It's revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. He said the the wrath of God is revealed against the self-righteousness of men. He, he, He showed us the reality. He said this, you have no excuse, oh man, you you don't have one. You're not left with any excuse. Unrighteous or self-righteous, you know, pagan or religious. You got nothing. He showed us the reality. Gentile and Jew, no one is righteous, no not one, no one understands. That's where we left off. Remember that? Nobody understands. No one seeks God. He said, there is no fear of God. As much as people say, I fear God, he said, there's no fear of God. He said, and now every mouth is silenced. That the whole world may be held accountable to God. He he lifted off the cover for us. He removed the cover. And and Paul showed us the diagnosis of humanity. He gives us spiritual diagnosis of humanity. He said, and that's the purpose of the law. That's what he told us. This is what it's for. So that we would see ourselves. So that we would see ourselves apart from God. That the law would bring consciousness of our sin. And what we need to grasp as we begin to dive into this part of what he tells us. That that no attempt at obedience is going to work. No attempt at obedience to the law will ever make you right before God. The law will never justify you. It will only condemn you. Remember, I said last week? The straight edge of the law will only show you how crooked you are. That's what he tells us. And to look under the covers, death. To look under the covers, death. It's physical death, it's eternal death, it's spiritual death. And attached with death, attached with the spiritual death of coming to recognize our sin, are th- there's emotions that are linked to it. There's things that your heart experiences is you experience the death sin brings. I, I think that there's three primary ones, three emotions that are real. They're, they're debilitating. They suck the, suck the life out of people. They drain us and exhaust us and fatigue us. They age you, your hair falls out. Go gray, you get fat, hopefully not. They make you mentally ill though, cripple you, they paralyze you, they disable you. These, the emotions that come with death, they, they just take you out. They're the fruit of death and I think there's three primary ones and they're this. Guilt, shame, and fear. Their master is death. Not God. Not Jesus. They're they're not part of creation. No, they they were introduced into creation when Adam entered into sin. And it came. We we talked a little bit about this a couple weeks ago at Jesus Culture. The shame and, and and the fear and the guilt that came over Adam. Adam, where are you? Where are you, man? The fruit of sin is death and death brings with it, death brings into the human experience these things, guilt and 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 shame and fear. Now guilt, because we like, we sit in the church, so we get this, right? Like we get this kind of conversation about guilt and innocence. We, we get why Jesus came because we were guilty sinners and he was the innocent lamb of God and he, he needed to shed his blood for us. I mean, we understand that that concept, that paradigm of guilt and innocence. Remember, remember the woman who was caught in adultery? Remember her? They brought her before Jesus, and the religious leaders had all gathered. They, they threw that woman, at, you know, that's always what I picture in my mind. They threw her down on the ground at the feet of Jesus, and they said, We caught this woman in adultery. She's guilty. She knew her guilt. And the law demands that we stone her, that we take stones and we stone her. Now, Jesus, what do you say? You know the story. It's such a great story. Jesus got down and he began to write in the gravel on the ground. And Scripture doesn't tell us. You know, we, we figure he probably started to write the, the names of the men who had been with that adulteress or, <laughs> you know, their sins he began to write. on the, I don't know what he began to, to write, but then he said that famous line that we all know so well, you know, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And one by one from the eldest to the youngest, the man just began to wander off until no one was left with her but Jesus who could have cast the first stone. And he said to her, he said, where are those who condemn you? And she said to him, there are are no more. And he said to her, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Guilt. She had guilt and Jesus said, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And and the message is this, in, in Jesus, we can be made innocent. Innocent. Guilt can be replaced with innocence by the power of God. Or think about shame, you know. We often, we often link, you know, guilt and, and innocence with, with this picture of the lid being taken off. They're guilty. But there's shame involved in all that too, isn't there? There's, there's shame involved with the experience of, of sin. And shame needs to be met with the honor of Honor of God. Shame is simply this a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong. I did wrong, Lord. I feel like such an idiot. Shame has gripped my heart, Lord. More than guilt, often shame grips our hearts. Remember the prodigal son? Remember him? He demanded his inheritance. He went to his father and he said, Father, give me my inheritance. You know, I want what's rightfully mine. When you're gone, I want it now. And his father gave it to him. And then, his, then that young man, that son, went, went off and he squandered it all. He, he, he blew it all on partying and prostitutes and drinking and friends and whoever, whatever, spent it all. Until he was reduced to wallowing in the mud with pigs and eating their scraps. And and then in that place he came to his senses, Jesus said. And he realized, man, at my father's house, the servants are treated better than the standard of living I have. Why don't I go back to my father and I will just say, I'm no longer your son. Treat me as one of your servants and it'll be better than this life wallowing in the mud. And you know the story. He, he, he went back to his father's home, and as he, as he approached the home, this, Jesus said this while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him, recognized his son, went running and he greeted him, put love on him, called his servants and said, Get clean clothes for my sons, get this guy a bath, man, kill the fattened calf, let's have a feast. My son, who is dead, is alive. And the father gave honor for shame. In place of shame, when he, st- when he was saying, I'm just fit to be a servant, the father said this, no, I put on you the honor of my son. You're my son. You know, when, we lift the, when, when the lid is lifted off and we feel the shame, we, we, we look at the law, the humiliation of our wrongs, the humiliation of, Our sin, the the humiliation of our shortcoming, man. What Paul's about to tell us is this, is that the gospel brings honor where there was shame. It brings innocence where there was guilt. The third emotion that comes into human experiences is is fear, like, and when I say fear, I mean like terror, (laughs) you know, terror. The fear of death, I've had a few conversations lately with parents in the community telling me, oh, and my kid, my child has night terrors. You know, there's like terror comes to them in the night. It's demonic, man. And, and they're, they're terrorized. They're afraid for their lives, they're afraid to leave their home, afraid to sleep over to a friend's house. It's fear. And the definition of fear is, is an unpleasant emotion that's caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous. That it's dangerous and it's likely to cause pain or threat. And sin, you think about sin and, and, and the fear that death brings and, and it causes humans to have terror of God. It's like we're afraid of God. It's like, whoa, this big, mean, nasty guy in the sky. Remember the account of the demoniac who was possessed by a legion of demons? Jesus got in that boat. He crossed the Sea of Galilee. He came to the eastern shore to the area of the Decapolis. And as he got out of the boat, the scripture tells us immediately, Mark chapter 5, he was met by this man possessed by an unclean spirit, a demoniac. And this man lived alone in a cemetery amongst the tombs, the scripture tells us. That, that no one could bind this guy anymore. Though they, they, they had bound him with chains and they had bound him with shackles, he had broken shackles, he had broken chains, he had wrenched them apart and night and day he would scream, he would cut himself and he lived amongst the tombs and no one had the strength to subdue this guy. And when he saw Jesus from a long way off, Mark chapter 5 tells us that he ran to him, he fell before him and with a loud voice he cried out and he said to Jesus, what if, why have you come here, Jesus, son of God? Have you come to torture me? I mean, you think about that. All the things that we know about Jesus, us pew sitters. He said, "If you come to torture me? It seems like a ridiculous question, Right? This was an encounter with an unclean spirit, but it was also an encounter with the fear that is inside of man with regards to God because of sin, because of death, because of uncleanness. And the unclean spirit asked for permission to enter the herd of pigs. And you know the story. Jesus called the the spirit out of the man. First he said, what's your name? He said, Legion. Jesus called the unclean spirit out and he allowed it to enter a, herd of pigs that numbered two thousand, and then the herd of pigs rushed down the steep bank and they went to the sea of galilee and they drowned you it's like an amazing story it's like man there's so much going on between the lines of that story it's like i heard, i was thinking about it remember we roasted five pigs we roasted five pigs do you remember all that work we're talking two thousand pigs Bloop. like goldfish floating in the sea of galilee this was a disaster <laughs> A disaster for the community. And when the people of, of, of the city heard what happened, they came to see, the scripture tells us. And when they came, they saw Jesus, and they saw the man who had been possessed by the demon sitting there in his right mind, clothed, because he had been naked, and in his right mind. Man's fear was transformed by the power of God. It's interesting, the scripture tells us God has not given us a spirit of fear, right? But of power, love, and a sound mind. John said this, there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. And so as you think about, you know, Romans 1, 2, and 3, and where we've come up to this point, you know, it's like, like I said, it's like Paul is lifted off the lid. We've, we've got the chance to peer in. And to us has been revealed human guilt. Guilty against God. And it makes us feel the shame of sin. You go, oh man, can't believe I did that. Can't believe I'm that. Can't believe that's inside here. It reve- reveals the, the fear that we have with encounters with death and the reality of death and the powers therein involved. But this is where we come to a major transition in this whole story that Paul's telling us. This is, this is like huge. It starts in verse 21, and this is like awesome. And it, it's just two words, which I told you to circle last week. It's like, but now, but now, let me tell you about something else, Paul says but now he's gonna introduce us into something that's entirely new. Man, it'll blow your mind. It'll change the way you live. He says, this is a different way of living. Something that maybe has been hidden from you, this economy, this spiritual economy, this way of existing and having relationship with God that's like, it'll blow your mind and change your life. A new way of living that's not about guilt, And it frees you from shame and it frees you from fear and all those strivings. In fact, this new way of living, this life in Jesus is about him setting us free from those very things. Guilt and shame and fear. He declares us innocent in spite of our guilt. He brings honor to our lives where there was shame, where we were wallowing in the mess with the pigs, he meets us in our fears and he says, I have the power to save you. I have the power to save you. Look with me again at verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So this verse, it just transitions us. He's going to change the whole theme now. It's going to, he's going to build off where he's been, but this is new. He's not talking about the judgment of God's law anymore. He's talking about justification for those who are in Christ Jesus. But now, that's, that's a conjunction, right? It, it says, it means this, it's, it's in opposition or in distinction or, or in comparison to everything that I've just, everything I've just spent three, three chapters talking about. In regards to all these preceding thoughts, let me share with you a reality that is now, that is right now, that is a reality that you can enter into at this very moment, at this present time, in And the verbiage means this, that that this is perfect. That what I'm about to tell you is perfect and it continues and it goes on and it will bring perfection into your life. But now, speaks of a new work of God, a righteousness apart from the law that has been revealed. Now we've seen, the law can't save you. We looked into the ark, saw death, saw sin, saw guilt, saw shame. Soft fear. But God has revealed a righteousness that can save us. And that righteousness is offered to us in Christ Jesus. It's, a, it's apart from law. Meaning apart from our own earning. Apart from our own striving. Apart from our own deserving. Apart from our own good works. And you know I was thinking this week you know it was like I started taking my vitamin D again. <laughs> the sun's kind of disappeared I started like a day or two late. You know, I always like, I'm vitamin DC guy. If I just take these, I'll be fine. I'll supplement my life and I won't be sick. And, you know, here's the thing about this righteousness that Paul is talking about. This this is not just a supplement. You know, this isn't just making up some slack where our righteousness falls short. You know, I, I don't like, you know, Put the icing on the cake with my efforts here. I'm not making up the slack. This is all God, the whole thing. It's all him. This is a whole new way of salvation, Paul is telling us, through faith in Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament prophets predicted this would come. Look what he says, verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This righteousness does not come by works of the law, It comes by faith in a person, the Lord Jesus. And so we we don't earn righteousness through our faith. There's no earning. There's no working here. It's beautiful. We receive it. We receive righteousness. We don't earn it. We receive righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, there's a big difference between, you know, a wage and a gift, right? Like when we work for a wage and we get paid, we just got what was coming to us. But when we receive a gift, it's no strings attached. This is, this is a, a no strings attached gift. And Paul tells us that the key to unlocking this whole thing is this thing called faith. Eight times in these just few verses, Paul references faith. Eight times, you'll see it, you know, I encourage you. Go home and read it and circle the word faith. It's shocking how many times it's mentioned in there, in a sense. It's the whole key to being justified. He doesn't tell us the key is belief. Remember James? James said the demons believe in God and believe that he exists. The key is not belief. The key is faith. To enter in by faith. And it's as we enter in by faith that we're personally linked to Jesus and we're made righteous. So, So faith is the key. And Paul says there's no distinction. There's no difference. Again, that God does not play favorites. He doesn't pick Gentile over Jew or male over female or any of these things that we like to use to divide people. This is for everyone. And it's unlocked for everyone by the key of faith. He says in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of, Of the glory of God. We've seen this over and over, haven't we, through this book? That everyone sins, everyone falls short of the glory of God, everyone misses the mark. And we can look at our neighbor and go, Well, you know, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay compared to that guy. But the comparison is not that guy. The comparison is the law of God and the person of of Jesus. And we have to make the right comparison. And that's not between us or our neighbor. It's between us and Jesus. And he sets a standard. And when my life gets weighed up there, whoa, I fall short. It's looking under the cover of the lid. But he says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He says we are justified by God's grace meaning his unearned, undeserved favor. That God makes us acceptable to him as we put our faith in Jesus. And and this word grace here, it means this. It means like that it's given openly. That it's in like large amounts without restriction. And what we have been given by the grace of God is redemption. Justification. Redemption means this, that we've been freed from something. That God is seeking to free us from slavery to sin and death and fear and guilt and shame. And the word redeem always means to pay for someone's freedom and to ransom them. Ransom from guilt, ransom from shame, ransom from fear, ransom from death. Ransom from sin and how could God do this? What gives him the ability to both be just, be a just judge and to honor sin and to redeem us at the same time? Well, he tells us. It's the atoning sacrifice of blood. He says, the propitiation of Christ Jesus. That's, that's, a, that's a big word. But Paul is, is telling us, how death is satisfied. The righteous judgment of God is satisfied by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, the shedding of the cross. You know that word propitiation? I keep telling you circle every word. Before you know, you'll have the whole passage circled. You'll be like, I can't read this anymore. I've circled every word. You ever have that with one of your Bibles? Once in a while, I do. Uh, The word propitiation means this, but you, you could write this in the margin. It means mercy seat. God made his son a mercy seat. He said, I, I'm going to put a new cover on the ark. And this cover is the once for all sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. This blood is the perfect sacrifice. From here on in, there's no lifting the lid for those who will come to me through faith in my son, Jesus Christ. He is the mercy seat. Look again, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Propitiation means this Jesus is the mercy seat. A new cover. A new way to atone for unrighteousness. Or maybe it's better to say not, not a new way to atone, but a, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect way. Still follows the same pattern of atonement, death, the shedding of blood, life for life. It's just by his sacrifice, by Jesus' sacrifice, well, well it's perfect. One sacrifice for all time, for all people. Verse 26, Verse 26, It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, Jesus, by his death, was a substitute for you and I. He was judged in our place. Because of Jesus, God could demonstrate his righteousness against sin, against the guilt, of mankind against shame and against fear, and he could spare those who truly deserved judgment because of what his son did. He could spare those who would put their faith in his blood, who would put their faith in his name. And as we put our faith in him, the work of the cross is applied to our lives, the blood of Jesus is applied, and we're justified. And the key to justification is that same, it's that same thing. It's faith. The word faith unlocks this whole passage. It's the imperative of the of the passage. It's the must. There, there's no other way. There's not a secondary option. You know when I take the a road trip, you know, you go on the road trips, I'm like, I'm the guy who like always likes to go one way there and a different way back. And if I could if If I could take two or three hours longer on the way back to see new things and go a different way, I'm like, I'll do it and drive whoever I'm traveling with crazy. Because it allows me to see different stuff. It, It mixes it up. But in regards to this topic before us, there's no secondary highway. There is no other option. No long way around. There's one highway, one path for your feet, one route of faith. It's like There's one highway, it's number one highway, and it's the only highway. It was only in 1942, I was reading about this in Canada, where it was like possible to drive across the country, right? On one highway, highway number one. Up till that point in time, you you had to find secondary routes, go down to the states, jog around this area. There's no secondary routes in what we're talking about, there is only one highway. It's faith. And without faith, there's no secondary option. Jesus took the punishment that was due you and I. The punishment that was due me and I, and we're forgiven our past. Justice can be satisfied. It has been satisfied, but, but what it requires on my part and what the cross requires on your part is, well, it, it's not applied to us automatically. The the key that unlocks the door again is, is faith. On God's part, his justice is satisfied by his son who lived a perfect life and who did not deserve to die, but died in my place. And on my part, what he requires is this, that I come to him by faith. That I come to him in faith in this person who died for me. Now we're gonna talk about what faith is a little bit more in a minute but you know I would say this is a bit of a precursor you know faith in Jesus we need to demonstrate that we actually trust him it's not like I can just say I have faith in Jesus and like that's all good you know Jonah's been learning how to drive (laughs) and we got the five speed and it's been lots of fun and uh, terrifying and uh, I, I tease him and say 40 kilometers an hour never felt so fast as when he's driving for me. And, but the reality is, is this, I'll tell you this, he's my son. I love him and I have faith in him. I have faith in his ability, so I get into the car with him. And it's like that with the Lord sometimes. You say, well, Lord, you know what you're doing. Not that Jonah knows what he's doing, but the Lord knows what he's doing. And though I'm not sure, I have to get into the car with him, sit down in a seat, buckle up, and say, he's got the wheel, let's go. You get the picture? You get the picture. Paul says this, in the past, in the, in the past, because of his forbearance, God was overlooking sin. He was, you know... He was overlooking, he was, he was giving time, he was being patient, and I'm glad for that. I'm glad that in my past, God was overlooking sin and he was waiting till I came to the point of faith where, where when I put my faith in him, he would declare me innocent and remove shame and guilt and all these things. In the past, he was overlooking, but Paul says, but now? Now, sin is paid for, and if you want to enter in, you've got to get into the car. If you, if you want to enter in, you enter in by faith. He says in comparison to the past, in verse 26, he, he tells us about this current, present reality. God's still displaying his righteousness. God's still displaying his, revealing his wrath upon mankind. And the way that, He puts his righteousness on display and the way that he shows it to us and invites us into his presence is by faith, by entering into the work of Jesus. He's still just. He is still the one. He's still holy God. He's still the one who justifies. And he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Look at verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? Our mouths have already been silenced, haven't they? then what becomes of our boasting It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works. No, but by the law of faith. You know what Paul's saying is this. When we get to heaven, no one's gonna say, look what I did. Look what I did, Lord. We're all gonna say, thank you, Jesus. You are my righteousness. I wasn't getting in without you. And all the attention And all the focus will be on him. We'll lay our crowns down. It was all you, King Jesus. Let's read through again to the end of the passage here, verse 28. For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised uh, through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. You know, the law is amazing because what the law does is kind of two things. It, 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 It undermines faith in a certain sense because when I like say I'm going to obey the law and I'm going to be a good person and I'm going to do all this and I, and I can't do it, it's like undermining faith in my life. And yet at the same time, it underlines failure and it says look at the standard. You can't keep it. You can't do it. And so what Paul is telling us here, again, is that the, the key is faith. Eight times in these few verses. And so the question in my mind is this. What's faith? What is this faith, Paul, you keep talking about? What does that look like for my life? How do I get into the car, sit down and buckle up to get in with you, Jesus? You know, in our culture, we seem to have like, I think some problematic understandings of faith and what that looks like. The concept of faith is often just reduced to like religious beliefs or doctrines that you hold to. You just say, well, I adhere to dot, 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 dot. I have faith. That's incomplete. That is not the right view or definition of what faith is. A, A better understanding of faith or one that is truer to scripture is to place the concept of faith into human relationships. So let me give you a picture of what that could look like. Think about the concept of, of patronage, okay? To like have a, a serf and a lord. Patronage is a, is a reciprocal relationship between people that are socially unequal. It's like you own all the land, you own all the property, I live on your property, I manage what belongs to you, and I get to like eat and have a roof over my head in this concept. You know, a, pa- a patron is almost like a sponsor. Think of, think of an immigrant coming to Canada. They need a sponsor. I remember when, when Lisa and I were buying our, f- our first house, the numbers didn't add up. My dad was our guarantor. He signed the dotted line. He's going to back us up should we fall through. He was the backer or, or in a, almost a, as a guarantee, almost like the financier. And he provided security and safety for the bank. And so the, the picture really of, of faith is this is that the we assume responsibility for the person who has needs. We know I'm the one that has needs, and we know who the wealthy one is. It's father in heaven. And in turn, I repay the I can't I can't give any, what am I gonna give the father? What am I going to give him? What am I going to give to Jesus when he owns everything and I just get to live on his land? The, the only thing I can do is thank him. I, 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 can, I can honor him. I, I, I can, you know, praise him. I can pledge my allegiance to him. I can let people know I am loyal in this direct. This is the loyalty of my life. I got nothing else, but this is where my loyalty is. Do you get the picture? And patrons, lords, give material help, and then out of that, they get to receive the honor. They get the glory. They get, they get all the clout in society, the power. It's like, wow, they get the distinction. They're the Lord. Societies and cultures work this way like all over the world, right? Like, like Canada, North America, Western kind of society, it's like we're, we're kind of unique in this sense, we're more independent. And, but, but we still function very much this way. We're like dependent on banks, all these sorts of things. We sign mortgages. We do such things. It's the way the world works. In the first century, in, in Jesus' time, this was how it was. It worked this way everywhere. That's why they laid out laws in the Old Testament. Said so you can have a, a slave for six years, but you're to set him free in the seventh year. You're not to hold your Jewish brothers in slavery. But outside of the nation of Israel, uh, there was millions and millions and millions of slaves in the world. It was the the bedrock of society. In fact, uh, one person said this, it was a person's principal assurance of aid and support in an uncertain and insecure world. It's like when you don't know what things hold, you trust your Lord to look after you See, life runs on relationships. It it runs on reciprocating honor and receiving. Only a foolish person doesn't recognize that. Solomon said this, you're a fool if you don't honor your father's friend. You're a fool. Why would you not honor your father's friend? Because they have a relationship and you get to participate and be the beneficiary Of that relationship. Don't damage that. Look after that. And that's what faith is like. It's like undivided loyalty to the Father and His Son, undivided loyalty to Jesus. That's faith. If you want a definition of faith, undivided loyalty to Jesus. In in the early church, that distinguished the Christians from the rest of the world. It's like these people are nuts, man. They're nuts. There's no question about where their loyalty lies. The pagans, people who didn't know Jesus, they, they sought lordship and patronage by pledging allegiance to who? Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. They pledged their allegiance to Roman leaders. They pledged their allegiance to pagan gods. And I would say this to you, in our culture, to be a pagan, listen to this, to be a pagan is to pledge allegiance to political leaders. That is pagan. That is not gospel. To say I'm Republican or Democrat, to say I'm a conservative or a liberal, that is pagan thinking. You are a Christian. Your allegiance is to Jesus. You know it's pagan. Get close to my heart here, to pledge allegiance to the gods of our culture. Sport, the ice rink, the Vancouver Canucks, the Seahawks, man, the Blue Jays. Nobody cheers for them. Who's kidding who? No, just kidding. Blake's not wearing his Blue Jay hat, so I said that. It's pagan to pledge allegiance to anything but Jesus. So faith is undivided loyalty to Jesus Christ. And when we just give Jesus steadfast, undivided loyalty, do you know what happens? It enhances his name, his renown, his glory. It demonstrates our allegiance to him. It says, I am your follower. I am your disciple. I give the allegiance and the loyalty of my life to you, Jesus. I'm getting in the car Barclay says that living by faith is expressed in new patterns of loyalty in your behavior. Let me ask you this. What are the patterns of loyalty in your behavior? Faith doesn't exclude behavior, it includes it. What are the patterns of loyalty in your behavior? You know, people display faith by, by trusting in, in the goodwill and the benevolence of of, of their patron or their Lord. For Christians, man, faith is bold confidence in Jesus. He says, man, all of a sudden now it's like, you can direct everything, Jesus. You can direct my finances. You can direct my time. You can direct my recreation. You can direct my marriage. You can direct my parenting. You can direct my life as a man or you could direct my life as a woman. You get control, Jesus. You're in the driver's seat. I've buckled up. Tell me how to obey. I want to walk with you. That's faith. And the scripture tells us this, that without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would approach him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You know, faith is just confident. God, I know. I know that you are going to bless as I get in the passenger seat. there's other words you could use. Allegiance, loyalty, I've said, faithfulness. And so God is just like a patron who's demonstrated his faithfulness to us. And here's how he did it. He said, I love you, and I'm sending my son to die for you. He's gonna take your place. He's gonna shed his blood. He's gonna lay it down and I'm gonna count him in your place. He's gonna die for your sin. And in Romans chapter three here, the Holy Holy Spirit is just declaring simply to us that, now listen to this, that God has assumed the responsibility for your salvation. He said, It's on me. You can't do it. You can't do it. This is all on me. I'm taking it. I'm the Lord. And in his grace, he said, Now here's the gift for you. Put your faith in my son, Jesus. Get into the car with him. Look, I can confidently just say to everyone in the room this morning. God has chosen you in Christ Jesus to be the recipient of his lordship, of his patronage. You know, like, we we always think that's like a bad thing. Oh, to live under a lord. Not this lord. Not this lord. He's invited you into that, to be the recipient of his patronage, and he calls you to praise him. He calls you to thank him. And to lavish upon him with your lips and your life because of the way that he is graciously and lavishly poured out upon you. He's transforming us. He's changing our hearts and he's calling us to be loyal to him and to be faithful to him. What's the pattern of faith in your life right now? What's the steps you're taking? You know, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus... That's why we call salvation this. We, we repent of our sin. Because when we're repenting, we're making an action. We're saying, I am turning from this, and I'm turning towards this. We turn from sin, repentance, and we turn in faith to the Lord. See, I, when I say sin, I should be pointing down like this, and then up like this, right? <laughs> I'm turning from sin, I'm repenting, and I'm putting my faith in you, Jesus your Lord, I'm counting on your generosity. I'm changing the loyalty of my life from self-serving, self-ruling, serving sin and putting my faith in you. Isn't it beautiful? The gospel's beautiful. It's beautiful. We have a Lord who is inviting us constantly to step into faith with him.